This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Seeds, where I share cases of parricide or the murder of parents by their children. On this episode, I'll tell you about one of the most baffling cases of parental murder that I've ever encountered. Lowell Lee Andrews didn't just kill his mother and father, but wiped out his entire family when he also turned the gun on his older sister. Andrews' confessed motivation for the killings was thin at best, and he never expressed remorse or regret for what he had done. Was he mentally ill, as his defense tried to claim? Or was this a case of a bad seed? A child born evil who decided to pick one snowy November evening to enact his murderous impulses. This is Chapter 2 of Bad Seeds, the case of Lowell Lee Andrews. Just after 1 a.m. on the morning of November 29, 1958, the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office received a report of a burglary at 6104 Wolcott Drive. The caller said he'd arrived home late and found his house ransacked and his family shot. This was shocking to the deputy, to say the least. Wolcott, a small sliver of Kansas, northwest of Kansas City, was sparsely populated and virtually crime-free. A few small farmhouses dotted the landscape, separated by large plots of land. A burglary was surprising in itself, but a violent crime against the homeowners? The deputy couldn't fathom it and wondered if it might be a prank call. In either case, he didn't know what he'd find once he arrived. As he drove up to the house, he parked his vehicle near the front porch. It was a frigid evening. Snow and sleet had fallen that day, making the roads treacherous, and as night fell, the temperatures dropped below freezing but a dark-haired male was sitting on the front porch in the cold. Next to him was a mixed-breed dog, which he was petting and playing with. As the deputy approached, he saw that he was just a boy, a large boy, standing approximately six feet tall and weighing over 250 pounds, but he was baby-faced and very young-looking. He was dressed somewhat formally for the weather, wearing a suit. Now the deputy thought there must have been some mistake about the report called into dispatch. The boy seemed very calm. The deputy addressed the boy, asking what had happened. Without even standing, the boy pointed to the front door and said, Look in there. The deputy entered the home. Every light was on, illuminating the rooms brightly, which made the scene that much more shocking. In the front room, he found two females lying on the floor. They had been shot multiple times. Both were clearly deceased. In the doorway leading into the kitchen, he found another body, this one male. He was lying face down and had also been shot many times. There was blood everywhere. Peering around the home, the deputy found drawers and cabinets opened and items strewn about. He also discovered two handbags that were overturned with their contents emptied out the deputy called in to report a triple murder. Two detectives arrived soon afterwards. They questioned the boy, who was identified as 18-year-old Lowell Lee Andrews. 
the deceased were his family members. His father, William Andrews, age 50, a mechanic for Transworld Airlines and a part-time farmer. His mother, Opal, age 41, and his sister, Jenny Marie, 20 years old. Lowell Andrews, or Lee, as he preferred to be called, told detectives he had come into town to spend the Thanksgiving break with his family. He was a college student attending the University of Kansas, where he was studying zoology. Both he and his sister, a senior at Oklahoma Baptist University, had come home on Thursday. His mother had prepared the Thanksgiving meal, and they had enjoyed the holiday together. On Friday evening, around 7 p.m., he'd driven back to his rooming house in Lawrence, Kansas, about 40 miles away, to retrieve a typewriter. He needed to work on an English paper over the weekend, he explained. On the way back, he stopped at the Granada movie theater in town to catch a movie. He then drove home, arriving around 1 a.m. He found his family shot and the house ransacked. The detectives found the boy oddly calm and unruffled at having found his entire family murdered. They also found his story strangely detailed, almost too detailed, as if it had been rehearsed. He told them how it had taken him almost twice as long, nearly two hours, to reach his rooming house, located at 1305 Tennessee Street in Lawrence, due to the icy road conditions. He told them that the movie he'd watched was Mardi Gras, starring Pat Boone. He even mentioned that he'd enjoyed the film. At no time did he cry or show any grief over the loss of his family. The county coroner was called to the scene to retrieve the bodies. He offered his condolences to young Lee, who remained stoic. The coroner asked if he had any preference for a funeral home to arrange his family's services. He was floored when the young man answered, I don't care what you do with them. Now detectives decided they needed to question Lowell Lee Andrews further and asked him to accompany them to the police station. He agreed. As Wolcott was such a small community, the coroner knew that the Andrews family were regular churchgoers and members of the Grandview Baptist Church. He decided to call the church's minister, Reverend Verto Dameron, to inform him of the murders. Reverend Dameron was a close family friend of the Andrews and was devastated upon hearing the news. Concerned for Lee, Dameron called the sheriff's office and discovered that the boy had been transported there and was with the detectives. About 3 a.m., he arrived at the police station to support Lee during this difficult time. The detectives were suspicious of the Andrews boy and his story. When the reverend arrived, they told him that they felt the boy was lying and probably had something to do with his family's murders. Reverend Dameron couldn't believe that this was possible. Lee Andrews was just about the most polite, gentle boy he knew, he told the cops. He'd known him since he was a baby, and he couldn't imagine he'd ever hurt a fly. Also, he said, the Andrews were a good, solid, loving family. He had never so much as heard a loud argument between them. Let him talk to the boy, Dameron asked the detectives. Perhaps he could get more information. The detectives agreed to let Dameron speak to Lee alone. Dameron entered the room and found Lee Andrews sitting quietly in a chair, looking composed. But Dameron thought, Perhaps he was in shock. He greeted him and pulled up a chair. He asked him if he wanted something to drink, and Lee asked for a Coke. 
Easing into the conversation, the Reverend asked him about his Thanksgiving holiday and about his studies. Lee answered the minister's questions politely. Then Dameron explained that the detectives were harboring some doubts about Lee's story. He suggested that Lee agree to take a polygraph test in order to clear his name. At this, Lee remained quiet. A minute ticked by in silence. Finally, Dameron asked, Lee, you didn't do this terrible thing, did you? If you did, now is the time to purge your soul. At that moment, Lee Andrews decided to tell the truth. He would later say, quote, I thought, what difference does it make? Unquote. He admitted to Dameron that he had shot his mother, father, and sister. Lowell Lee Andrews confessed to the murders of his parents and sister just hours after they were discovered dead, shot multiple times in their home. He was speaking with a friend of the family who was also their minister, Berto Dameron, when he decided to admit to the crime. At that point, Dameron told Lee that if he wished, he could keep his confession confidential and he would help him find an attorney. But, he said, if he wished to make a statement to the county attorney, Dameron would stand by him as a friend and minister. Lee simply replied, bring them in. Dameron then called the investigators into the room, telling them that Lee was ready to make a statement. Lowell Lee Andrews admitted that he had been planning to kill his family since that spring. He first thought of poisoning them, but decided that plan was too risky. Autopsies would surely be conducted, he believed, and the manner of death would be discovered. He was afraid that the purchase of the poison could be traced back to him. Instead, that summer, he decided he would shoot them and make it look like a robbery gone wrong. He waited until the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, when he knew his sister would also be home from college. On that Friday, he spent the day in his room reading the novel The Brothers Karamazov. A couple of things to point out at this portion of the story. First of all, Lee Andrews had always been a kid who lived inside of books. He read voraciously, sometimes several books a week throughout his life. He didn't have a social life, no real friends to speak of, and he'd never dated or had a girlfriend. Instead, he locked himself away in his bedroom and read. One of his favorite things to read was stories about gangsters. He would later admit that he'd fantasized about living the life of a gangster, wearing silk suits, commanding respect, and being wealthy. At least, this was his idea of the gangster lifestyle he read about in books and watched in movies. The second thing to point out here was Andrew's choice of reading material that weekend. The Brothers Karamazov, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, is a classic philosophical novel based on the themes of morality, free will, and ethical debates on faith. It also revolves around the theme of patricide. Fyodor Karamazov, the patriarch of the family, is described as an ne'er-do-well, a fool, and a lech. His son Dmitri, the only child from his first marriage, hates his father, although he is the most like him. Dmitri spends his time drinking and womanizing and only seeks out his hated father in order to obtain an advance on his inheritance. Ivan, Fyodor's second son, is deeply disturbed by all the suffering he has seen in the world 
and has decided he cannot believe in a God who would allow such things. He also dislikes his father and is not close to his brothers. He can most easily be described as dark and depressed. Alexei, who is called Alyosha by his family, is the sainted younger brother. He is deeply religious and has become a novice in the Orthodox Church and is living in a monastery. Each of the sons has a problematic relationship with their father, and the climax of the story is when Fyodor is found murdered and his son Dmitri is accused and tried for the crime. Now, this may seem like a bit of an aside, and I will admit that it is one of my favorite novels, but there is also a strange kind of irony that Lee Andrews chose this novel to read that weekend. Or perhaps it was deliberate. Like I said, he lived inside books and may be reading a story that described his son's animosity towards a parent and a subsequent murder helped to prepare him for what came next. At about 7 p.m., Lee Andrews told detectives he finished his book. He then showered, shaved, and put on a suit. He loaded two weapons, a semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle and a Ruger 22 caliber revolver. He placed the revolver in a hip holster and shouldered the rifle. He then walked downstairs. His family was sitting in the living room watching television. All the lights in the room were off. He switched on the lights and fired the rifle first at his sister Jenny. The first shot hit her between the eyes and she fell dead. He then turned the rifle on his mother and father, shooting Opal three times and William twice. His parents didn't die instantly. His mother was wounded, and she began staggering towards him. He described to detectives how his mother's mouth was moving, as if she was trying to speak to him. He told her to shut up, and then shot her three more times. Detectives asked if he'd shot them in the living room, why was his father's body found in the kitchen? Lee explained that his father had continued to live after he shot him with the rifle, and was able to crawl over the threshold into the kitchen. He assumed he was trying to make it to the back door. Andrews said he now used the revolver to shoot his father, firing it at him until it ran out of bullets. He then reloaded the gun and continued shooting. William Andrews was shot a total of 17 times. Although Jenny had been killed instantly, according to Lee's account, he shot her twice more with the revolver. An autopsy would record that Jenny had been shot a total of three times, Opal a total of six. He then set out to make it look like the home had been robbed. Before going downstairs, he opened his bedroom window and removed the screen. He turned out dresser drawers and emptied the contents. He also emptied his mother's and sister's purses. Loading the weapon into his father's car, he then drove the 40 miles to his rooming house located at 1305 Tennessee Street in Lawrence. On the way, he stopped at the Massachusetts Street Bridge that spanned the Kansas River and threw the dismantled guns into the water. Once he arrived at the rooming house, he made sure to speak to his roommate and his landlord. He told them that he'd come back to pick up his typewriter to work on an English assignment. He also made a point of saying, the road conditions had been so bad, it had taken him twice as long as normal to make the trip, almost two hours. 
On the way back, he stopped at a gas station. He made sure that he was recognized there as well. Finally, he stopped at the Granada Theater in Lawrence and purchased a ticket for a late showing of the American musical comedy Mardi Gras. After it let out, he drove slowly home, arriving around 1 a.m. The family dog was whining on the porch, wanting to be fed. He'd forgotten to do so before he'd left. So, stepping over his father's body, he'd filled the dog's bowl with food and then put it on the porch. He sat with the dog as he ate. When the dog had finished eating, he took the bowl back inside, and it was at that time that he'd called the police to report the murders of his family. The detectives and the minister sat in stunned silence, listening to Lee Andrews calmly and matter-of-factly describe his act of family annihilation. When asked what he felt about what he had done, Andrews answered, quote, I didn't feel anything about it. The time came, and I was doing what I had to do. That's all there was to it, unquote. And why did he feel it was what he had to do? What was his motivation? Andrew said his only motivation was that he wanted to inherit his father's farm and land. The house was worth approximately $48,000, and with the land, his total inheritance would be about $200,000. He also knew that there was about $1,800 in his parents' savings account. When asked if he had disliked his family enough to murder them, Lee said no, he liked them well enough, but decided that eliminating them was the only way to get the money from their estate. Lowell Lee Andrews read through his written confession and signed it without an ounce of emotion and zero expression of any regret for the murder of his entire family. Lowell Lee Andrews was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and held without bond. The February following the murders, he was sent to the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, to undergo a mental health evaluation. The defense planned to plead not guilty by reason of insanity and requested the evaluation to determine whether Andrews was mentally competent to stand trial. Should he be found guilty of first-degree murder, Andrews could spend life in prison or be sentenced to death. If acquitted by reason of insanity, he would be sent to the state hospital for the legally insane. Andrews was evaluated by three psychiatrists, including Dr. Joseph Satin, who wrote up the evaluation report. Andrews was diagnosed as schizophrenic, simple type, meaning that he was not experiencing delusions, false perceptions, or hallucinations. The doctor concluded that Andrews experienced a, quote, separation of thinking from feeling, unquote, but that he did know that committing murder was wrong at the time of his crime and therefore was legally sane during the commission of the act. The psychiatrist's report went on to say that they classified Andrew's crime as, quote, sudden murder, unquote, meaning that he presented as completely fine, sane, and rational before and after committing the act of murder. Regarding his crime, Dr. Satin wrote, Lowell Lee Andrews felt no emotions whatsoever. He considered himself the only important, only significant person in the world, and in his own seclusive world, it seemed to him just as right to kill his mother as to kill an animal or a fly. While awaiting his sentence, when asked if he felt remorse about his crime, 
Andrews responded, I'm not sorry, and I'm not glad I did it. I just don't know why I did it. Dr. Satin concluded that Andrews was legally sane. He knew what he did was wrong and should be punished. However, he felt the appropriate punishment for Lee Andrews was confinement to the state hospital for the criminally insane. But the doctors would not determine Andrews' fate. The court would. Receiving the report that Andrews had not been diagnosed as legally insane, the judge sentenced him to death, and he was sent to Lansing Prison to await his execution. The people of Wolcott couldn't believe that Lee Andrews had committed such a heinous act. One woman even described him to a reporter as, quote, the nicest boy in Wolcott, unquote. Now, he was sitting on death row in a Kansas state prison alongside hardened criminals. Kansas had abolished capital punishment in 1907, but after an increase in high-profile crimes committed by the likes of bank robber Pretty Boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde, the public demanded harsher sentences to deter criminals. In response, the death penalty was reinstated in 1935. The first execution in Kansas since the ban was carried out in 1944. Andrew spent his time in prison much as he had before, alone and with his head in a book. He had a lot of free time on his hands, so Andrews was able to read even more than before, between 15 and 20 books per week. He liked poetry. Some of his favorite poets were Robert Frost, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, and Ogden Nash. He read so much that he burned through all the books in the prison's library. The prison chaplain and other prison employees checked out books for him from the Kansas City Public Library. Andrews also loved food and, of course, couldn't get as much of it to eat as he had when he was free. So he once again retreated into a fantasy life. This time, he created a scrapbook of pictures and drawings of the foods he craved, like strawberry shortcake. While in prison, Andrews lost over 60 pounds. But Andrews did have one friend in prison. After about a year spent in Lansing Prison, two new inmates arrived on death row. Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith had been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for the murders of four members of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas, in November of 1959, almost exactly one year to the day of Andrew's crime. Hickok and Smith had gained celebrity-like status after their high-profile crime, especially after writer Truman Capote began visiting them to report on the story. The book he would write about the Clutter murders, titled In Cold Blood, would become a bestseller and a classic crime novel, and another of my favorite books. It's possible that because Hickok and Smith's case became such big news in Kansas that Lowell Lee Andrews quickly became forgotten in the media. Lansing's death row was made up of 12 7-foot by 10-foot cells placed together side by side. Smith and Hickok were housed next to one another, but by the time they were sent to Lansing, they weren't on very friendly terms and didn't talk much to one another. Hickok's cell was located adjacent to Andrews, and they became friends. Hickok called him Andy. Lowell Lee Andrews even makes an appearance in the novel. At the end of In Cold Blood, Dick Hickok is quoted as saying, I really liked Andy. He was a nut. Not a real nut like they kept hollering, but you know, just goofy. 
He was always talking about breaking out of here and making his living as a hired gun. He liked to imagine himself roaming around Chicago or Los Angeles with a machine gun inside a violin case. Cooling guys. He said he'd charge a thousand bucks a stiff. One day, Andrews told Hickok, Sooner or later, we'll all get out of here. Either walk out or be carried out in a coffin. Myself, I don't care whether I walk or get carried. It's all the same in the end. Hickok shook his head and replied, The trouble with you, Andy, you've got no respect for human life, including your own. Andrews said, That's true, and I'll tell you something else. If I ever do get out of here alive, I mean over the walls and clear out, well, maybe nobody will know where Andy went, but they'll sure as hell know where Andy's been. But Perry Smith did not like Andy, according to Hickok. Smith was self-taught. He had not received any formal education after the third grade, but he considered himself an intellectual and spent his time in prison reading, writing poems, and painting. Smith had always seemed smart to Hickok until he met Andy. Andy, he said, was the smartest guy he'd ever met. Smith was jealous of Andy's college education and proper speech. Smith especially hated it when Andy corrected his grammar. After a while, Smith stopped talking and kept to himself. The method of execution at that time in Kansas was hanging. The gallows were constructed just across the yard from the prison inside a large warehouse. Hickok and Smith were scheduled to hang in October of 1962, but were granted a reprieve by a federal judge. Lowell Lee Andrews' sentence had been appealed several times, and his execution date of April 1960 had long since come and gone. Three stays had been granted, but his last appeal ran out, and his execution was scheduled for November 30, 1962. Andrews was looking forward to his last meal and requested all his favorite foods he'd been craving for the past four years. He put away two fried chickens, french fries, a lettuce salad, soda, vanilla ice cream with strawberries, and was also given permission to smoke cigars. Just after midnight, Smith and Hickok watched as Andrews was let out of his cell and walked across the yard to the prepared gallows inside the warehouse. Hickok described the events of that night in detail to Truman Capote. From the end of In Cold Blood. That was a cold night, cold and wet. We were all at our windows watching, Perry and me, Ronnie York, Jimmy Latham. It was just after midnight, and the warehouse was lit up like a Halloween pumpkin. The doors wide open. We could see the witnesses, a lot of guards, the doctor, and the warden. Every damn thing but the gallows. It was off at an angle, but we could see its shadow. A shadow on the wall, like the shadow of a boxing ring. A reporter who witnessed the execution described Andrew's demeanor as calm and composed. Another described him as, quote, outwardly remorseless and disinterested, unquote. Asked by the warden if he had any final words, Andrew smiled slightly and said, No, I don't believe so. A bit taken aback by his flip answer, the warden asked once again if Andrews had any final words. This time, straight-faced, Andrews replied, No. Again, Hickok's description. The chaplain and four guards had charge of Andy, and when they got to the door, they stopped a second. Andy was looking at the gallows. You could sense he was. His arms were tied in front of him. All of a sudden, the chaplain reached out and took off Andy's glasses, which was kind of pitiful, Andy without his glasses. 
They led him on inside, and I wondered he could see to climb the steps. It was real quiet, just nothing but this dog barking way off. Then we heard it, the sound. And Jimmy Latham said, What was that? And I told him what it was, the trap door. Every few minutes, the doctor came to the door and stepped outside and stood there with his stethoscope in his hand, like he was gasping for breath, and he was crying too. Then he'd go back and listen to hear if Andy's heart had stopped. Seemed like it never would. It took between 17 and 19 minutes for Lowell Lee Andrews to die. He was 22 years old. His body was claimed by his aunt and uncle and buried in Mount Salem Cemetery in Missouri alongside his family. His mother, father, and sister occupied one plot together. Lowell Lee was placed in a separate plot with the word son placed under the name on his headstone. Hickok and Smith remained for two and a half more years on death row before their date with the gallows. They were both hanged on April 14, 1965. In Cold Blood was published that same year. Lowell Lee Andrews is portrayed in three movies based on Capote's book. He is played by Bowman Upchurch in the original film starring Robert Blake, released in 1967, by C. Ernst Harth in the film Capote in 2005, and by Ray Gestat in the film Infamous, released in 2006. So what was Lowell Lee Andrews' real motivation for killing his family? Was it as simple as an act of greed as he claimed? Was it to live out the fantasy of being a gangster or hired gun like he talked about with the other inmates? Or did he harbor some resentment or hate for his family, most likely his father? I wondered about this after learning that he'd been reading the brothers Karamazov at the time of the murders. Lee was said to be a very intelligent boy. It was reported that he scored the highest IQ of anyone who'd ever attended his high school. So it's possible he saw aspects of himself personified in the novel's characters. Perhaps he identified with Ivan, the son who suffers from depression and dark thoughts. He can see no purpose in life, but just filled with suffering, and has decided that there is no God, or if there is, he does not care about mankind. Surely some of Andrew's words of not feeling anything about the murderers and that he didn't care if he walked out or was carried out of prison because, quote, it's all the same in the end, unquote, reflects this worldview. Andrews spoke and acted as if the things that would grieve and terrify most men, pumping his family full of bullets or facing the hangman's noose, made no impression on him whatsoever. Or perhaps he identified more closely with Dimitri, who the novel describes as most like his father, he spent money foolishly drinking and partying and sowing his wild oats. Andrews pictured himself living this kind of life as a gangster. But Dimitri ran out of money and came for his inheritance, insisting he was entitled to the money immediately when he most needed it. In the same way, Andrews said he'd decided to kill his family to get his father's money and property. He, too, felt entitled to his father's hard-earned money and was unwilling to wait. And, of course, the book's climax is when the father is found dead and Dimitri charged with his murder. Was this a coincidence or a blueprint and justification for murder? We'll never know for sure, but it's something to consider.
That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Our next chapter in the series, Bad Seeds, will be released on February 24th. But you can get a bonus episode, One More Case of a Child Killing His Parent, if you are a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to get early release ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, a welcome gift pack with OUAC goodies, and more. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.